Yoshi. Hi. We are back together in the same studio for the first time in a few weeks. Back in our windowless cell. It's nice to see you in the flesh, my friend. Yeah. Um, we are working together in close proximity, but should we be living together, <laughs> Yoshi? That's an incredibly tenuous link to a story that we've got on today's podcast. It is. It's not just me and you in this studio. It's also Elle, who's um, doing a day shadowing Danny in the office. She's from Hebden Bridge. Should we get her to come over and say hi yes. on the mic? Hi, Elle. Elle. Come on over. You went to the mill office, didn't you, recently? Yeah. In the, how did you, what, what did you make of it? It was really sweet. It was really um, cosy. Lots of plants. Um, Chinese money plants. You've just got one yourself, haven't you? Yeah, I've got a small one. I've already given her some instructions about how to keep it alive, but we'll... Um... Nice, excellent. <laughs> well, welcome, Al. You're very welcome. Thank you. And this kind of uh, communal experience, we're going to find out more about on the podcast today, aren't we? More on that next. This is the Manchester Weekly from the Mill. Hello, I'm Daryl Morris with Yoshi Herman, the editor of uh, The Mill, Manchester's quality newspaper delivered by email. Yoshi, as well as this really fascinating story about uh, people in Greater Manchester who are championing the idea of co-living, we're also going to meet a man who's written a potted history um, of the north of England, right? Yeah, that's Brian Groom. He's a former assistant editor of the FT. He grew up in Manchester. He knows a hell of a lot about the north. And he's written this enormous book for Harper North about northerners and about northern history. It's the first big sort of northern history for quite a while. He's been a mill member for ages and um, we thought it'd be great to get him on. Lovely. Okay, we'll speak to him shortly because, you know, you think you know the North, you think you know the history of the North steeped in uh, its industrial history. Actually, we're going to go well and beyond that as well um, uh, and find its real origins to tell us, I guess, where we are really up to today. Uh, Before we do that, let's get you briefed on everything you need to know from around Greater Manchester this week. And Yoshi, a story that links us inevitably, as many things will over the next 12 months, to the cost of living crisis in Greater Manchester. New figures that show that one in four children in Greater Manchester living in poverty last year. Yeah, the MEN reports that there not only are four and five living in poverty, which is a figure that I think people who look at these things kind of know, but it's it's still sort of every, shocking every time you hear it, but also that there are neighbourhoods where that number is 60%, 70%. And I think that's really mind-blowing. Like there's a bit of a, in Oldham where it's 67%. I think there's a North Levenshume, which you sort of associate now with gentrification and, 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 and people moving in, middle-class people moving in and house prices going up, you know, talking about 60% of people living in poverty. For me, this story, first of all, it's a reminder that there are pockets of Greater Manchester very, very close to where we live and work where people are going to be really struggling in the, in the, in the next few months. And I think you really have to start thinking of debt. That could be the real sort of time bomb here as people start to get in more and more debt to pay for bills that they just can't afford to pay. So that's one thing I think we should keep an eye on. But I think the other thing it reminds me of is that you can have a city and a city region that is growing so fast and that's creating so many jobs and that GDP is shooting up. And you can still have these pockets of real, genuine, sort of nation-leading deprivation. I mean, this bit of Oldham that I was talking about it has one of the highest child poverty rates in the country. And when I interviewed Sir Richard Lees, the former leader of Manchester City Council, I pushed him quite a lot on this question of how can we have an economy that's growing so fast and still have areas where the level of deprivation doesn't seem to have changed in relative terms to other bits of the country for 20 years. And I think it's a really interesting question. Like Partly it's that those areas you know, re- recycle who lives there. It's not just the same families. You know, People, people when, they, when they start doing a little bit better, they move out of some of these areas. But really there is a big conversation to be had in this city region now that it's growing fast now that it has economic momentum about 
poverty, you know, and, and, and tackling poverty and taking poverty seriously as a first order thing, rather than assuming that the kind of growth that we've been pursuing is going to trickle out. Because I think it's fairly clear from these figures and loads of others that we've looked at, that that isn't happening in any sort of uh, systematic way. Mm. Um, we'll keep an eye on that story for sure, and uh, and I guess it's a story that's just beginning, isn't it? With the um, with things starting to bite over the next uh, twelve months or so. Elsewhere, Yoshi, we were keeping an eye on the ramifications of events in Eastern Europe, and we spoke a couple of weeks ago, didn't we, on a, a special edition of the Manchester Weekly podcast to Oksana, who runs a store in Greater Manchester uh, in Cheatham Hill uh, of uh, that serves the Ukrainian and Russian and Estonian communities in Greater Manchester uh, with lots of sort of foods and bits and stuff. And imported goods and one of the questions that we asked her was has she experienced any tensions between those two communities i suppose as a resident of greater manchester myself i've been kind of keeping an eye on whether or not that story would lead to tensions here within greater manchester a rochdale councillor yoshi this week has pointed towards that happening yeah there was a discussion at rochdale council about this problem and there was a leading councillor there who's the liberal democrat group leader he he said i've heard from Russian citizens that live in the borough, that they need protection, you know, that they're getting abuse in the street and their kids are getting abuse in schools because they're Russian. You know, that's obviously really shocking to hear. It's it, In a way, it's not surprising given the amount of media coverage and stuff. I think that's why some media companies have tried to refer to it as Vladimir Putin's invasion rather than Ru- the Russian invasion. But yeah, I think it's the f- sort of flip side of what we've talked about with the Ukrainian community, isn't it? It's wonderful to live in a city region that's so diverse, has so many different communities, uh, groups of people that you wouldn't didn't even know we had in large numbers, but who really support each other in this kind of time. It also means that you've got people living cheek by jowl you know who who might be Russian, who might be who might be getting persecuted, or you know even just treated badly by people at school and that kind of thing. It's definitely one to um, keep an eye on. I think it's sort of actually an important one for these local councillors to, to to take seriously. For sure. If you want to you want to hear Oksana's story as well, by the way, uh, really emotional, but a really important snapshot. I think of the reaction in Greater Manchester to events in Eastern Europe. It's a couple of episodes down on your podcast feed, a special episode of the Manchester Weekly that we did after the invasion. Really worth a listen for her perspective and the perspective of the Ukrainian community in Greater Manchester. And a nod as well, Yoshi, for uh, the marketing department. Uh, Magnum, uh, who've been who've uh, successfully gone viral uh, with one of their marketing campaigns this week, uh, but perhaps not for the best of reasons. Um, a poster that they uh, erected in, I think, at Piccadilly Gardens, right, Yoshi? What, what did it say? The only thing that can make lying on Piccadilly Gardens even better <laughs> with a huge picture of a, I would say that's a sort of a a milk chocolate flavored uh, Magnum ice cream. Um, which was obviously amusing to a lot of people who don't like Piccadilly Gardens at all. It's like, what's the only thing that can make it better? A £30 million revamp that completely <laughs> raises it to the ground. <laughs> or a pound fifty ice cream, don't know. Bless them. I, I feel a bit sorry for them, to be honest with you. I mean, maybe a trip to the city might have worked, <laughs> might have helped out. <laughs> yeah, Amy Jones, who's like a local person on, on Twitter, said that, you know, it's a good way for Magnum's marketing department to reveal that they've never been or indeed spoken to anyone from Manchester. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but how off to you, Yoshi, for your strong knowledge of Magnums there. You, you called that straight off the bat. Well done. <laughs> Thank you very much. Now, we're quite proud of our history here in the north of England, aren't we? I think we're quite proud of knowing who built the streets on which we walk. But do we 
really? And how much further back should we go beyond the Industrial Revolution that we talk about a heck of a lot, don't we, to understand where the North really came from, what it was founded in? And what does that tell us, I guess, about where we are today? A really important moment of history for the North of England. Well, Brian Groom, who is a former assistant editor of the Financial Times, has written an epic history of the North. Uh, It is huge. He gets into all of those details. And frankly, it's an essential read, I think, for anybody connected with this part of the world. Brian joins us on the Manchester Weekly now. Brian, hi. Hi. Uh, this is a this is a big, big, ambitious book, isn't it, Brian? Um, what was the what was the plan? What did you want to achieve? It, it certainly is. I, I first thought of it about ten years ago, and for uh, for me, much of my working life, I've I've been dealing with British and regional affairs, um, and I'm a northerner. And um, as a kid, I was uh, I was history mad. So in my mind, all these things came together and it was an obvious, obvious subject to think of. And then when I started looking into it, I was astonished to discover that um, it hardly ever been done. There's only ever been one um, general history of Northern England published before, and that was more than 30 years ago. So there was an opportunity there. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the bit of history that I think we talk about a lot in Manchester, you know, including on the mill, is the Industrial Revolution. And you wrote a great piece for us this week that touched on Manchester's sort of enormous growth during that period. But you must have also learned a lot about its sort of medieval and pre-medieval period in the north and, and in this neck of the woods. Tell us about that. Yeah, in many ways for me, studying the earlier part of the history was, was the most interesting because like you, I, I, I know a fair bit about the Industrial Revolution. I knew less about the, um, the prehistory and the Anglo-Saxon history and the medieval history. Uh, so that was all uh, uh, quite new to me. And before, before the Industrial Revolution, Lancashire as a whole was poor, isolated and sparsely populated. Mm. Um, it tended to most much of it was an uncultivated mossland and heathland. Yorkshire on the other side of the Pennines was much wealthier. It had good farmland in the east. It was tied into the North Sea trading community. The high road from London up to Scotland and Carlisle went through there and bypassed Lancashire. Right. <laughs> Manchester had some importance because it was a Roman settlement for a time, not as big a one as York or Chester, but it was it was important enough. Uh, and by the Middle Ages, uh, Manchester had become a smallish market town. It was focused around the area where the cathedral and Cheetham School are now. And it grew to become a centre for making woolens and linen helped by an influx of Flemish weavers. Right. In fact, the fact that, that, that Manchester and the North as a whole already had a sort of cottage-based textile industry, that was one of the factors that helped it to capture the global uh, cotton and woolen industries when the Industrial Revolution came along. And that the Industrial Revolution certainly changed everything. Um, Manchester, which had been growing slowly for some centuries, suddenly expanded sixfold in 60 years. And Lancashire moved up from being one of the poorest counties in England to being the third wealthiest, according to the tax data. Wow. Mm. There's some great stuff in your book. There's a there's a bit that I really love because it's actually about what happened with kind of entertainment and music halls. And suddenly in your book, you say there were so many people living in Manchester and Bolton and Oldham and Rochdale, and they had a bit of money to spend that you had... Um, the growth of music halls and, and big pubs with singing areas. And there's a fantastic bit of your book where you quote a Baptist minister who was campaigning for the withdrawal of the Bolton Star Hall's licence, which must I think it was one of the early music halls in 1852. And he told a public meeting, 
about a, a tall, well-dressed female who came onto the platform and attracted the crowd's attention by a song. And then he says, I do not say that the song was immoral, but I do affirm that the gestures of the lady who sang it, together with the stimulating influence of the drink and the whole scene, were calculated to excite the basest passions of the human mind. And then he said, I felt that I was in the very suburbs of hell. I thought that was such a fantastic <laughs> bit. Um, and you must have pulled out lots of sort of vignettes and stories like that that you had never heard about. Tell, tell us about a couple of those. It's certainly true. I, I didn't know before I started that Bolton was an important part <laughs> of the story, the creation of the musical. So that was a fantastic yeah. thing to discover. I think at one point they, they had a menagerie as well and their pet wow. lion um, savaged its keeper. Um, wow. <laughs> amazing place. Um, I've, I've picked out a couple of in, uh, couple of colourful people I thought I might mention. Mm, yeah. um, in, 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 in the Manchester context, I thought I might talk a bit about uh, John Dee, who was an alchemist, mathematician, wow. an astrologer, and a scientist, um, and uh, an advisor to Queen Elizabeth I. And um, he may well have been the um, the model for Prospero in Shakespeare's The Tempest. Oh, yeah. um, now, he um, uh, he was famous for things like trying to talk to angels um, right. so he could um, discover the language that God had used in creating the universe. But anyway, he was an advisor to Elizabeth, but he was short of money. Mm. So he petitioned her for a remunerative position. And the best you could offer him was to become warden of Christ Chop College, Manchester, which was uh, opposite the um, the collegiate church, which became the cathedral. It uh, right. basically educated the clergyman from there. So he took this job and it gave him nothing but grief. Um, the place was in terrible disrepair. The buildings had been sold. Its land had been leased on poor terms. Right. Struggled to exercise authority over the fellows in the college who were mostly extreme Puritans who <laughs> despised him. Uh, far from making money from it, he had to borrow and uh, he had scarcely enough money to feed his family and his servants. And then to, to cap it all, um, his wife died in Manchester from bubonic plague. So oh his God. experience of the t- was not great. That's, um, and, and just quickly, before you give us another one. That college, because I read about that in the book when you talked about D, that college doesn't exist anymore. So was it was it where the football museum is now? And, and do you know do you know what it's, became of it? It's roughly there. I don't think the same buildings exist. No, I think it's ultimately part of what is Cheatham's. But okay. um, but I, I'm not I'm not quite clear about the buildings. They were I think I think they're mostly gone. Okay, got it. Um, yeah, tell us about someone else because that's a fantastic character. Yeah, well, I thought I'd come. I'd come back to your musical theme and talk a bit about George Formby Senior. Mm. Um, he was the father of the George Formby that most of us know a bit about, the uh, star of the British comedy films in the thirties and forties. Mm. But his father was part of that Victorian way, the rich Lancashire scene of music hall comedians. Lancashire, right. in particular, but North as a whole, Lancashire in particular produced a massive, this great range of comedians and a deep comic um, history. Mm. And he was born into poverty in Ashton-under-Lyne, and he played characters, including one called John Willie, who was your archetypical gormless Lancashire lad, accident-prone but mm. muddled through. And he had a cane twirl and a duck-like walk that allegedly inspired Charlie Chaplin. <laughs> uh, and he was, for years, he, um, George Formby Senior was battling against consumption, but he made a joke of it with a side such as Coffin Better Tonight, Coffin Summit Champion. <laughs> and he was billed as the, the Wigan Nightingale, which is a reference to his croaky voice. Wow. And one of, one of the nice uh, things about the story in the end is after he died in 1921, 
his son used parts of his father's act to start his own stage career. And then when he established himself, he in turn decided to change his name to George Formby. Um, so there were two of them, and the, the latter one went on to be the uh, ukulele playing star that we know. Wow, the George Formby. And is that something, Brian, that you've kind of a, a, a vein through some of your research that you have found that points towards this sort of well-held, almost slightly cliched view that people from the north of England are naturally good raconteurs, entertainers like George Formby. There's something in, I don't know, our history or our culture or maybe even our politics up here that makes that true? And there's a, there's a lot of speculation, certainly about or theories about why um, it's produced so many comedians, for example. Um, some people have attributed it to the weather, the soft southwest wind. AJP Taylor, the historian, said that um, yeah, the whimsicality you're seeing comes from the southwest wind bringing an atmosphere that is always blurred and usually gentle. I think, personally, I think it's probably got more to, get, to do with um, a lot of people being, sub, being thrown together by rapid industrialization, mm. uh, which is a brutal experience, and um, responding to their conditions as a kind of coping strategy. Anthony Burgess called it the bark of the underdog. And uh, and I guess I will I'll uh, doff my cap as a loud mouth Boltonian, uh, somebody who's a Boltonian who's made a career out of chatting for a living. Uh, I uh, I doff my cap to those people. Um, so where are we now, Brian? You were the assistant editor of the Financial Times as the Brexit vote happened. You'll have watched that happen from that vantage point. Uh, we live in a post-Brexit North now. Um, you know, lots of chatter about levelling up and and settling that North-South divide. Where does the North of England find itself today? Yeah, I'd, I'd, you made the move here by the time of the Brexit vote so I saw it from a, a northern perspective mm. and uh, very, you can see it, it, it echoes quite a lot of things that have happened in the North's history but I, um, as, as for now and where we're going um, I, I go in the book into some detail in the, the, um, the growth of the economic divide since the old industry started dying um, after the First World War and the um, Northern England's share of, um, in, of Britain's um, gross domestic product has, has shrunk from 30% to about 20%. And there's a whole history from the 1920s onwards of an attempt, official attempts to narrow that gap. And I think you'd have to say that they are mostly being inconsistent and half-hearted and they chop and change a lot. So when there's a change of government, one the new government comes and throws out what the last government has done. And even within governments, you get, as prime ministers change, you get a change of approach. So, um, you know, we hardly ever hear of the Northern powerhouse, which is George Osborne's thing anymore. And we're talking about levelling up. The most successful regeneration there's been anywhere in recent years, that's Eastern Germany. Um, it's involved partnership between local politicians and businesses and central government, plus a, a large degree of local autonomy over decision making at regional and city level, um, a big, big state investment. But also, crucially, um, it had cross party support and the schemes they devised uh, uh, were designed to last for decades. And that's something we've never had in the UK. And if, if we're going to successfully revive the difficult parts of the North, I do think we need a more consistent approach. Mm. And, and do you know what? To understand those big decisions, to make those decisions, you need to know the history. You need to know uh, the foundations on which a place was built. And those decision makers could do worse than reading Northerners, a history from the Ice Age to the present day. Uh, Brian, it's been a joy to talk to you. Uh, thank you very much for being with us. Thank you. You're welcome. 
Now, Yoshi, you sent uh, the Mills' Jack Walton off to meet some people in Greater Manchester this week, didn't you, who are kind of championing a new way of living. Yeah, it's this idea of intergenerational co-living. I didn't know much about it, but Danny had flagged it and Jack had flagged it. It's a very early stage plan to have different people of different ages living and sharing a lot more. And that's an idea I like a lot. It's not something I do. I live in a a flat in a converted warehouse in the Northern Quarters. I don't live out this kind of way of life. But I'm just interested in there are more and more people across the country who are saying, actually, maybe we've become too atomized. Maybe we don't need to buy every single thing ourselves. Maybe we can help to look after each other's kids a bit more, have a bit more supportiveness, deal with some of the loneliness in society by basically hanging out more, Mm. having more shared spaces in in the places we live rather than having our own living room and our own kitchen and stuff. So I thought Jack's a good person to go along and speak to these people, find out what's going on and see if this is like a viable way to, to live in the future. Nice. Okay, well, Jack joins us on the Manchester Weekly now. Jack, hi. Hello. Hello. Hi. Um, who did you meet, Jack? Uh, yeah, so I went to meet two different groups uh, in Manchester. Uh, one called Cordata and the other called MECO, which stands for Manchester Intergenerational Co-Housing. And these are groups, well, the, the first group of which Cordata are already living together in a sort of cooperative setup. And the second group, Miko, are they're planning and they're, they're they're planning to design this sort of intentional um, community, which uh, they will create themselves. They'll build themselves with the uh, help of investors, and it's sort of designed to to, to bring together uh, uh, people from from different generations and, and and to live in this this setup with communal areas, but also their own private areas. But it's it's a sort of longer term uh, uh, vision that they've got. And Jack. Talk us through the sort of practicalities here. What sort of stuff do they think we should share more? What kind of spaces do they think we should spend more time in together? Like what what part of their lives do they want to be separate and what parts do they want to be together? Yeah. So, I mean, I think this was quite a key point for a few of the people I spoke to. They weren't saying that we want to do everything together. You know, they were saying we want our own private space, our own private time. But things like, you know, eating meals together and... um, Mm. One of the members of of one of the groups said, like, for example, in, in another um, co-housing group that she visited, um, whenever a couple had a baby that was born, like everyone would come together and cook for that couple for a week, you know, just to just to release a little bit of the stress of that, you know, first week after after you've had a child. And it's things like that, which ease, ease, ease living, particularly as you get older. Mm. So, you know, there, there's people there to look out for you if you if you haven't had an operation or if you've um, if you're feeling unwell. And also things like your um, environmentally thinking. So, for example, that, that they would hope to have shared cars and um, growing space so they can grow their own vegetables in the Midland and that sort of thing. And there's that sort of uh, environmental aspect to it, too. And they, they plan to build it to an architectural standard called Passive House, which is like this sort of ultra low carbon um, net zero sort of uh, architectural standards, which is popular in Scandinavia and in Germany and in places mm, like this. Mm, okay, really fascinating, and I really like this idea. But but are there downsides, Jack, that you ran into, or indeed criticisms? Well, I think when people hear the terms like co-housing and uh, cooperative or co-living, you know, I think people's minds run to the to the sixties and they're thinking sort of psychedelics and. Uh, orgies and debauchery <laughs> and uh, all that side of thing but um, in reality this is a, this is a far cry from that um i, I think the difficult it's not so much a criticism on my part i think the difficulty for them is is dealing with misconceptions uh, one of the members um was telling me that like when her parents 
uh, were due to meet a couple of the people that that, um, that she plans to move into this development with. They were thinking like, oh God, like these these sort of straggly-haired, unwashed, <laughs> unkempt, um, old-age hippies are going to be sort of turning up. And then when they did, she was sort of, you know, wow, they're actually quite normal, <laughs> which um, which was kind of funny. But um, I think I think it's less a criticism on my part, but more more the misconceptions and trying to get get across what they're actually all about. Mm. rather than what people might think. Oh, that's really, really fascinating, really interesting. Actually, you know, when you sort of apply that to your own life, I think about when we were cutting the grass yesterday and the lawnmower, do, why do we need a lawnmower? We, yeah. the, why, why, does, why can't one street have How a lawnmower? And, exactly. Like, How often are you using it? Every, uh, Five uh, times a year. Totally, absolutely. Tops. Yeah, yeah. Tops. Um, really, really interesting. You can read Jack's piece and you can meet the cohabitors and um, and find out what they're all about. Manchestermill.co.uk is where you find Jack's piece. Go there to subscribe to more stuff like that. Jack, for now, thank you. Thank you very much. Quick look ahead, my friend. What's going on in the Mill newsroom? What are you working on? We've got a great piece coming out this weekend by Maria, actually, who we interviewed on this podcast, a Ukrainian journalist yes. who came over from Kiev. She's now in Manchester and she's writing a really lovely thing about sort of Ukrainian Easter being celebrated by Ukrainians in Manchester. So that's going to be brilliant. brilliant. I've just sent off a print edition to a woman in her, I think, late 80s, maybe early 90s, who I met at a synagogue at a concert. Doesn't have um, the internet. And she wanted to know about the mail. So I've just sent her a... I've just, just put it in the mail, a, a print edition. We will build this, Yoshi, one by one. Yeah. Person by person, if need be. <laughs> Lovely stuff. Okay, uh, and what should we be doing around Greater Manchester? Quite a big weekend, lots going on, Easter holidays and stuff. Plenty happening. What should we be doing? My big recommendation would be the St John Passion, which they're doing at the Cathedral. Manchester Baroque, they're doing it in partnership with the Cathedral, raising money for UK Med, who we talked about on this podcast. Mm. We've interviewed uh, Tony from UK Med. Um, All the ticket prices, 100% of the proceeds are going towards UK Med's um, Ukraine campaign. Um, So that is at the Cathedral. And it's at 7.30 on Friday night, 15th of April, Friday. Good stuff. Um, My nod for the weekend is the Astronomy Photographer of the Year exhibition, which is opening at the, uh, which is at Jodrell Bank. I think I mentioned Jodrell Bank last week. Actually, it's a bit of sort of developed an obsession with Jodrell Bank over recent weeks uh, in Macclesfield. And they are hosting uh, a huge, big exhibition uh, of some of the finest works from the Astronomy Photographer of the Year Awards. It opens uh, this weekend. It's on through until the 1st of May. There are some dates on the website it runs monday to sunday 10 to 5 the stunning stunning photographs i mean really like kind of existential aren't they uh, some of those images uh you don't think so no you pulled your face at the prospect <laughs> of being existential don't stop for me existential love it no, i love it i think they are right yeah, i think definitely. like puts you know our existence into perspective yeah it? um okay that's it from us for this week on the manchester weekly yoshi may or may not be back uh, next week uh, don't forget to uh, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and you can subscribe to the mill as well more quality journalism direct to your inbox manchestermill.co.uk is where you do that and give us a rating please we do. need that five star rating please we do. pick up like one new rating a week give us a rating please you can do it see you next week